0: sinners lost and hopeless Jesus blood can make you free for he saved the worst among you when he saved a wretch like me to the faith he giveth power through the mountains makes a way findeth water in the desert turns the night to golden day and I know oh, yes I know yes I know yes I know, yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And I know, yes, I know, yes, I know, yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. In temptation, He is near thee holds the power of hell at bay guides you to the path of safety gives you grace for every day he will keep thee while the ages roll through Work for good to thee, and I know, and I know, yes, I know, yes, I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean, and I know, yes, I know, yes, I know, yes, I know. Jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean, and I know. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean, and I know. And I know. Yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner
1: clean. Well, I'm glad that's true. Aren't you glad that's true? Amen. It don't matter. I mean, we're all in the same boat, aren't we? It all in the same boat, we just need Jesus Christ, amen? Praise the Lord. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, did I, I I forgot to tell you probably to throw that back up there, didn't I? Can you guys do that for me real quick? You know that one I'm talking about on Wednesday? I should have told you earlier. I got to be a little more clear on that, don't I? Here we go. All right, so Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, again, we're talking about uh, the idea of you become who you follow. And, uh, again, it's been in our, uh, you know, uh, just um, our series lately. We've been working through this, and now we've got to this particular lesson, You Become Who You Follow. We've been working on this one for a little while. And, of course, we talked about the idea that you become who you follow. Be careful who you follow. It's a big deal. And uh, I know nobody gets it but me. But, anyway, I like it. I thought I was being pretty witty when I came up with that picture. But, nonetheless, uh, either way, uh, so... Uh, We've been talking about the book of Mark. Look in chapter 1, verse 16. We'll read that, and then we'll go ahead and kind of jump right into this, uh, review very quickly, and get into some new material uh, tonight. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, the Bible says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Now again, we get into this lesson and we noticed right off the bat that there's a little bit of a difference in the New Testament. As you go through the gospels, you're going to find that there's this particular situation is mentioned a number of times, actually in every single one of the gospels. We're going to note just 3 of the examples though. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 9, God uses the writer Matthew and he says and he shall and he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you Fishers of men. In Luke chapter 5, verse 10, we read it, the same situation. He says, And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Now, before I go any further, let me make it very clear that when God takes these gospels and sometimes people say, well, how's come that verse is read a little bit different than the verse over here and say, Luke Mark's different than Luke Luke's different than John. But yet it's the same. It's the same exact uh, situation or it's the same circumstance. I mean, Jesus, it's, it's the, it's the exact same event even. Well, because it's kind of like parts of a pie. You take each piece and you put it together and it makes a whole And what God's doing is sometimes he's allowing us to see from a different perspective. For instance, Matthew's viewing the exact same thing that Luke was, and Luke's viewing the exact same thing that Mark was. But let me tell you, if you all saw an accident on the street, probably we'd come up with a number of different viewpoints and a number of different accounts. Even though it was the exact same event, it would look a little different to you than it did to me. You might emphasize and point out one thing a little more than the other. I would point out something else far differently. It doesn't mean that the event was changed. It doesn't mean that the Bible's in error here. What it's helping us to see is get a better picture, a more fuller picture by getting three different or four different observations. And so in this case, we see that two of the men are speaking, and one says, Oh, I will make you fishers of men, and from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And then in Mark 1:17, come after come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And so we took the time to look at that and notice that, and we recognize that the first two patches, passages seem to emphasize the fact that they catch men and be fishers of men and become fishers of men in that sense. But The Mark portion, look at this, it emphasizes a process. One emphasizes the fact, the other emphasizes a process. And and again, I think it's important to recognize that because he says, and I will make you to become. That's a continual process. And so what we said was that word become means to pass from one state to another. And so the fact is, is that whatever you follow then is what you will ultimately become. And we talked about role models, we talked about the behavior tree, and we come to the conclusion that we recognize that there's an element that God has begun a work in us, and he hasn't fulfilled it yet. He hasn't completed it. When we come to Jesus Christ, we have just begun the journey. Uh, listen, we, have finally, we are in the family of God. We are now the child of God. We now have a home in heaven, and we have the Spirit of God living in us. But the fact is, is that the Bible says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, He had begun a good work in you, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ being when he returns and we are raptured out and we receive our new bodies, the day of Jesus Christ. The fact is is that you are a a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. Anyone that names the name of Christ is simply a work in progress. And so, we understand that no one becomes all that God would have them to be the very moment they come to Christ or get saved. Becoming is a process that takes time. Amen. And that's what we recognize and we understand. And so with that said, we're done with that. OK. Now we took some time through this process of this series to look over a number of things. We talked about um, what well, we talked about, some examples of people in the Bible who were supposed to be friends but led someone astray you got to be careful who you follow because you become who you follow. We talked about that. We talked about the master himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We addressed some issues with him. We said, for even here were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. We said, well, what does that mean to follow his steps? Well, we took some time to break down 1 Peter two twenty one through 24. We went right through that passage and we really took some time to deal with that and then... Uh, Well, we decided we're going to look at some other things. We said, okay, now, what concrete benchmarks help us evaluate our fellowship? I mean, who are we, I mean, who are we fellowshipping with? How do we know who we're fellowshipping with? Well, we said, well, if you're fellowshipping with Christ, you're going to be walking in the light. You're going to be loving the brethren. You're going to love not the world. You're going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, have a compassion uh, and a a giving spirit. You're going to receive answers to prayer. You're going to have, uh, his commandments will not be grievous. You're You're going to avoid idols. Talked about all of those things. Now, there are some tangible elements, we said, of the Christian life that would be wise to use as a gauge to determine our true state of fellowship with God. Are we fellowshipping with God? That's what we addressed last week. That's what we talked about. How can we tell if we're, we're truly fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ? And we spent time, and we just mentioned those right there for just a few moments. Now, here it is, the, the, the new material. Here we go. So, we noted who we are fellowshipping with. Now, tonight, we want to ask the question, how closely are we fellowshipping? Okay, we've identified, are we really following the Lord? Because you're going to become who you follow. But how closely are we following the Lord then? How do we gauge that? We looked in the book of 1 John and we said, okay, who are we really following? If we're really following Christ, here's some evidences of it, seven different evidences we talked about right out of the book of 1 John. But now that we say we've got that one, yes, indeed, I'm following the Lord. Question, how closely? Well, the test is going to be this, conformity to Christ himself then. The level of our conformity. Take your Bible, look over at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Again, if if we become become who we follow, so if we're really following the Lord and we're really uh, close to the Lord, then guess what? The Bible says we're going to be more like Him then. And so that's what we want to note tonight. We want to consider that. And we're going to ask some questions about that. I mean, we're going to say, what does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in attitude? What does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in action? And so let's consider that. So look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This, by the way, is the goal for every believer, every child of God. Here it is. It's not complicated. It's not easy, necessarily. It's it's much more involved than sometimes we'd like to admit, but it's not complicated. It is pretty simple. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Now, the passage is pretty clear here. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is nothing new, by the way. Notice he uses the word predestinate. What he's talking about is it was already predetermined. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ, God in His foreknowledge said, You know what? What I'm going to require, what's going to be expected is going to be conformity to my son, Jesus Christ. That's how it's always been. That's how it always will be. Every time a person comes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God's saying, you know what? Before you ever came to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I had already predetermined or predestinated that you would be conformed to the image of my son. That's what he's saying. And so... The question then arises, what, what does that mean, conform? conform to the image of Jesus Christ. What's it mean to be conformed? Well, to reduce to a likeness or correspondence in manners, opinions, or moral qualities. Again, to reduce to a likeness or correspondence in manners, opinions, or moral qualities. Hmm. Boy, that, that definitely raises the standard pretty high. If indeed I'm supposed to pattern my life after Christ's conduct, his views, his morality, then boy, I'll tell you what, that's, that's, a, that's a, a big pill to swallow. That's a pretty tall order. To look like Jesus in my conduct and have my, his views and his moral compass, my, that, that's huge. So how much do you look? act, think, and live like Jesus Christ? That's the real question, isn't it? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves, which will identify how closely we've been walking with Him. Now, we understood, and we've already discussed it, what, you know, um, who are we following? Because if we're following the Lord, there'll be evidences of it. We said in 1 John, we gave those seven things. But now we want to ask the question, how close are we really to him now? If I'm to evaluate my life, if I'm to look at myself right where I stand today, how close am I to Jesus Christ in my fellowship, in my walk? The answer is found in our likeness of him. It's found in our conformity to him. Am I conformed to the image of Christ? How closely do I look like Jesus? Not just to me. It's easy for us. You know, well, yeah, I'm pretty, you know, I'm a lot like Jesus. Well, Yeah, but what about your boss at work? What do they think? What about your wife or your husband? Okay, <laughs> hey, come on now. I mean, it's easy for me to kind of, you know, slough off some of those Areas that I'm weak in or maybe I'm not even very good in. And, and yet, boy, the rest of the world sees those areas, don't they? They recognize those inconsistencies and those flaws. So let's be honest with ourselves tonight. How, how, how close is our fellowship with Christ? And if the conformity to Christ and being conformed to Him is the, the standard, then we should be able to really kind of figure out where we're at with Him. So let's consider that then tonight. Let's take a few moments and ask those questions. What does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in attitude then? Well, that's what we're going to start off talking about. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership. Bless us tonight. We need you. Without you, we can do nothing. We're very aware of this, not only according to your word, but only even in our own lives. May you encourage us now from the blessed book, the word of God. We'll thank you. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves the way you see us, Not how we see ourselves, but how you see us. That we might better ourselves for you and become more like you. We'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. What does being conformed to the image of Christ look like in attitude then? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, would you? Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus is gonna make a statement here and I believe the statement really reveals his attitude. An attitude that I think is so important and so necessary in our own lives, but I do believe at times isn't really necessarily where we're at. Notice what he says. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We all know that verse, and it's on the heels of that verse that he writes, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now that word meek, what does that mean? He says, I am meek. He's talking about mild of temper. Soft, gentle, not easily provoked or irritated. (laughs) Wow. Wow. How much like Jesus are you now? How much like Jesus am I? You know what I'm saying? I mean, now we got to get down to the nitty-gritty here. we got to really face the reality here of what we are in relationship to who he is. And he says, I am meek. Oh, you're mild of temper. Now, when it says he's soft and gentle, let me tell you something. There was nothing weak about Jesus Christ. Meekness and weakness are two different things. Jesus Christ grew up in a carpenter's home, and I can guarantee you, he worked with his hands, and he didn't have all these uh, tools that we have, all these modern conveniences, a bunch of all these carpenters, these guys doing work around the church, they act like it's so tough when it's so simple with all these different tools they've got at their disposal, bunch of wimps. Okay, maybe not that bad, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about, but I mean to tell you, nowadays we got sawzalls, we got zip, you know, all kinds of saws, you know. We even got saws you stick in the wall and cuts out little holes and stuff for you. I mean, it's crazy all the tools that are available, but not in Jesus' day. Man, it was all done by hand. I mean, this dude, I'm telling you, he was strong, he was powerful. I guarantee you, he wasn't a weak person. You know, no carpenter, even today, honestly, I was kind of joking around, but you get with some of those men in the trades and in some of them ladies, I wouldn't want to arm wrestle a few of them. But the fact is, is that they ain't to mess with. You don't mess around with them. They're, they're tough, they're sturdy, they're strong. Jesus wasn't weak. He was meek, though. Mild of temper, soft, gentle, not easily provoked or irritated. He also says he's lowly. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? For the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe. Having a low esteem of oneself. Should I say one's worth? Humble, meek, free from pride. Having a low esteem of one's own worth. How is it that Jesus, the creator of the universe, stands before us and he says, listen, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Wow. Humble, meek, free from pride. If anybody had a reason to be arrogant, a reason to be prideful, a reason to stand above others and say, you will bow to me, it would have been Jesus. But Jesus, the Bible says, himself, his own admission, I'm lowly. I'm humble, I'm meek, I'm free from pride. And you know what you say, well that right there proves he wasn't meek then and he wasn't really uh yeah he was. Uh, let me tell you something. You let somebody that you could wipe out with one word, r- pluck your beard out. You let somebody that with one swipe, one one l- little movement of your tongue could say be gone with him. And yet he's he's beating you mercilessly. I mean you, you allow somebody and a group of soldiers even that with, with one wave of the hand bring the angels on. He could have wiped out the whole Roman army. Don't 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 listen this was a meek and lowly man Jesus Christ was to allow his enemies to do what they did to him when he could have easily subdued them and wiped them all out. You talk about somebody that the Bible describes as being meek, mild of temper, not easily provoked or irritated. That's Jesus. You talk about somebody that said, you know what? I'm not all that. Even though I'm God, I'm willing to humble myself on behalf of, the, of mankind because my heart breaks for their sin and I want them to be Redeemed. Willingly endured that hurt, that heartache, that horror for us on Calvary. And he did it humbly. Boy, it is impossible to consider the conditions that Christ endured. The way in which he responded amazing. It's just impossible. We marvel, do we not? I mean, to think of what the conditions, the conditions that he endured, to think about how he responded to those things. I don't know about you, but I marvel. Look at First Peter chapter 2. You say, how did he respond? Well, we talked about a few, a couple, three weeks ago, I think we mentioned this passage. We broke it down. But just for the sake of uh, the lesson, let's look at this again, because it's really amazing how he responded to his enemies. We're talking about in the heat of the moment. We're talking about when right before they're prepared to take him to Calvary, ultimately he's going to be crucified and he's going to give his life. Notice how he responded to all of this. First Peter, we're looking back now on that situation and here we're getting a commentary on that whole ordeal. First Peter 2 verse 21. For even here unto are ye called because Christ also suffered for us. Hey, listen, don't ever forget, he suffered for us. He didn't suffer because he deserved it. We deserved it. He suffered for us. Leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Watch, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who is own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Isn't it amazing how he responded even to his enemies? How he responded in the heat of this horrendous torture that he was enduring. It's amazing, really. So despite the ruthless and vicious treatment of the of the council, I mean those of his own race, those of his own people. And the Roman leaders themselves, Jesus continued to submit. He continued to give in. He continued to allow this to transpire and take place. He could have called, as we already recognized earlier, 12 legions of angels. That'd be 72,000 of them. And we know, and we talked about this, one angel alone we see killing 185,000 Assyrians. One angel alone we see going through Egypt and killing all the firstborn. You say, I don't understand why God would let that happen. We don't have time to discuss it now, but let me say that God is justified in how he works. Despite that kind of treatment, he would not call on even one angel to rescue him, but instead he humbled himself and he committed himself, the Bible says, to God who judges righteously. So I want to spend just a moment, and I want to talk real quick because we're out of time already, to be frank with you. But I want to talk about some just biblical thoughts on humility real quick. Here it is, number one. Early on in the scriptures, we are warned about pride. Look, if you would, in Proverbs 29, 23. I'm telling you, we must be very, very careful with this issue of pride. Pride will cost you more than you ever would dream. Sadly enough, there are scores of people that will ultimately end up separated from God in a place called the lake of fire, a place that we often refer to as hell, because of their pride. Sad. It's sad, isn't it? There are homes that are broken, marriages that are wrecked and ruined. There are families that are just totally dysfunctional because of this issue of pride. Early on in the scriptures, we are warned about it. Proverbs 29, 23 The Bible says, a man's pride shall bring him low. But honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. The warning, a man's pride shall bring him low. It was pride that landed Satan in hot water with God. It was also pride that ultimately would cast the universe and the world into chaos and ultimately complete torment. We we know that. Over in Ezekiel 20, Eight. Let me just read verse 15 and verse 17 of that chapter. Thou wast, referring to Lucifer at the time, which is ultimately called Satan after the fall, thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. We skip over to verse 17 and we identify this iniquity. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty... Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. And God goes on to say, I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Well, that ain't happened quite yet. One day it will though. But I can tell you this, the heart of Satan was elevated. His pride brought him low. It ultimately cost him his position around the throne room of God. It ultimately cost us in this world every good thing that God had provided for us in the garden. Sin. And it's all because of this pride. Pride brought that on. Let me tell you what. I can guarantee you this. If there's an area in your life that you're struggling with, you better check pride because it's probably got something to do with it one way or the other. Because pride is at the root of all sin. Number two, not only early on in the scriptures are we warned about pride, but number two, we're given insight into one of the secrets to true success then. Here's one of the secrets to true success. Turn to Matthew 18.4. You say, boy, I want to be successful in life. Well, here's one of the secrets. In Matthew 18.4, the Lord Jesus is speaking. He says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, we don't have time to go into it, but the kingdom of heaven is a literal, visible kingdom. And what you'll find is that that literal, visible kingdom is in the millennium. Literally, Christ will rule and reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Be a literal kingdom. Right now, we are. We are part of the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom. We're born into that spiritual kingdom. But the world in which we live is a very corrupt and sinful place. You know, the Bible said when Jesus arrived that he was the prince of peace, right? Where's all the peace? It's in your heart, because it's certainly not in the world. It's a spiritual kingdom we're birthed into when we come to Jesus Christ. The physical kingdom is called the kingdom of heaven. You'll find it only in the book of Matthew, 33 times. And it is promised to the children of Israel and to those that will return with Jesus Christ in chapter 19 of Revelation and ultimately occupy and rule and reign with him. The kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, himself ruling, because when he was on earth, the kingdom of God is with us because he's there. And the kingdom of heaven, the physical kingdom, will both be in existence when we, we gather at the millennium. After, we know, we know what happens. There's a rapture of the church. There's a seven-year tribulation. There's uh, the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and Armageddon. And then we have that thousand-year reign with Jesus Christ called the millennium. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven will be united, and will be doing real well. Till then, though, we have peace inside because Christ lives in us. That's where the peace is. Someone says, why should I come to Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because if you're looking for joy, peace, and purpose, you don't find that in the world you live in. You find that in a person, Jesus, and you don't get it till he moves into your heart. And if you want those things, you have to have him. He is the Prince of Peace. But unfortunately, what they do to him? They crucified him said, we don't want you here. But fortunately, he died. He completed his mission. He fulfilled the law, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on an old-fashioned, old, rugged cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin, death. He shed that perfect, precious blood for us. What a wonderful Savior. And then he rose again. He's not on earth now at least not in person. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But He is in us, if you know Christ. That's where the peace is. If you have no peace in your life, it's one of two reasons. One, either Christ is not in you, or two, you're not allowing Him to rule in your life. It's one of two reasons. How many Christians fail to have peace? It's because they're not allowing Christ to have preeminence and be on the throne of their life and rule as king. They choose to rule instead. That's a dangerous place. And may I say this, before anybody gets high and mighty, every last one of us takes steps in that direction at times in our life. And we have to always recalibrate and get back to where God wants us and allow him to be where he wants to be in our life. Because we start to move toward the flesh, the world, and he says, no, 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 come on back. Get me back where I belong in charge. So we gotta, it's a constant battle in our lives. So if we want that peace, we want purpose, we want joy, we've got to have him on the throne. So he says we're given insight, I said. We're, I said we're given insight into one of the secrets of true success. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that sounds like success to me. I don't know about you, but when I, I'm involved in a sporting activity, I want to be number one. Matter of fact, the other day I was in my office, and I just, just I think it might have been this morning or yesterday, I'm looking up on, my, uh, up on one of my uh, counters up there, and I saw these trophies up there. And you know the ones that stood out in my mind? Weren't the second place ones. It was the first place ones. I said, Boy, I like that first place. That first place is what I really like. He says here, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but I want success in my life. Do you know what you have to have in order to be successful in the Christian life? Humility. Number three, God's plan is that submission start early on in our lives and continue into adulthood. We see that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Boy, have we lost that in the United States. <clears throat> we were over in the Philippines recently. Boy, I tell you, it was a wonderful place in the sense... Here, what I mean by that is this. It was a wonderful place in the sense that they recognized the value of older people. I'll tell you what, it was amazing. And, and one of those older people's with us tonight, <laughs> Shirley Wetzel. <laughs> well, she was the one that they, we got right to the front of the line because of her. <laughs> but again, I told you this already. I, I, have to, I also have to admit, they thought I was her husband. So... I got to, you know, hey, you know what are you doing to do? You know what I'm saying? So either way, all right? She definitely is a lot older than me. But for some reason, they thought I was old too, okay? (laughs) Okay, we're going to move on. So anyway, 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise ye younger yourselves unto the elder. And then watch, Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Again, God's plan has always been that that submissions start early and continue through our life. Just because we're getting older doesn't mean that we have, we're, we're no longer required to submit in situations and circumstances. Boy, there are times we have to bite the bullet. There's times we have to humble ourselves. It doesn't matter how old we get. Think about marriage. The Bible kicks it off right there in marriage before it gets, you know, the, the old, uh, you know, wives, submit to your own husbands. Before it ever gets there, you know what it says? Submitting yourselves one to another. So there's always an element. All of us are to submit to one another. We're to have a spirit of submission, a spirit of humility. That's something that's to begin and continue through life. And finally, number four, let me just give you this. God resists the proud. He resists the proud. But he lifts up and exalts those who humble themselves before God and man. Again, in James 4, 6, the Bible says, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. In James four ten, he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. He goes on in 1 Peter 5, 6 to say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. How does Jesus look? I mean, when we think about Christ, His attitude. How many, I mean, how does being conformed to the image of Christ look in attitude? Well, I guarantee you what it is. It's a meek and lowly attitude. It's one of humility. The question then tonight is this. How close are we really to him? Because you become who you follow. How's that humility coming along? How's that meekness, that lowliness coming along? Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together. We thank you, Father, for just the